All right. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to the first epistle of John, chapter 1, please. John 1, 1. First John, that would be. And the message entitled, John's Witness of Christ. The apostle uh, John was one of the 12 apostles, the longest living as he's writing this epistle. And you can imagine just the incredible things that he had witnessed, seen, and uh, been part of during the ministry of Jesus, as well as even after the fact. John um, had left a very um, prosperous fishing business, as you know, in Bethsaida of Galilee, having servants in boats. Uh, allowed his family to have a house in Bethsaida as well as in Jerusalem, Mark one twenty tells us. So it wasn't that he was uh, poor and, and what, that's why he followed Jesus. No. I mean, today if you have a business of, with boats and servants and you have two houses, you're not doing bad. Okay? So um, it's interesting when you look at the scriptures. Uh, he was a fisherman, a partner with Paul, I mean with Peter, if you remember. And um, he was a disciple of John the Baptist and then he became a disciple of Jesus Christ. One of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And John was known by the priestly family. Um, we are told that he um, was the one that got um, Peter into the courtyard of the high priest once um, Jesus was arrested. So he had interconnections uh, through the priestly family. And he was um, the only one at the cross, and Jesus commended his uh, mother to John. Uh, he ran to the tomb with Peter saw it empty. He had been boiled in oil, according to Domitian, tradition tells us, and when he didn't die, he was exiled to the island of Patmos that we are told about in Revelation 1.9. John now is an old man in his 90s, and he's spending his last years in the church of Ephesus. You stop and think about the pastors that Ephesus had, Paul, um, John, uh, Timothy, uh, amazing, and yet heresy came in and many people were deceived. So it's not always because of the pastors or the doctrine, it's because of the people. As we look to our nation today and we see the condition of our nation, um, though it is a result of our leaders, but the problem now is the people. And so the people have been so corrupted and so degenerated that now they're, they're, they're settling for leaders that have no affiliation or relationship to our republic and our constitution. And so there's the, the problem compounds. Now, the opening four verses here are a unit where John gives the personal witness of Christ regarding the gospel message. In verse 1, he gives the attestation to the word of life, and 2, the revelation of the word of life, and in verse 3 and 4, the intention of the word of life. And he lays it out because the Gnostics were, were deceiving believers. If believers cannot be deceived, then John wouldn't have to write this letter. Very, very clear. And so what we want to do is focus on verse 1. Let me read here. Um, verse 1 of chapter 1 says, of that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Here John um, attests to the word of life, and he describes his witness from a threefold perspective. First, he speaks about the eternal word of life, and it's all regarding Jesus Christ. Second, he gives the historical word of life, and thirdly, the spiritual word of life. And they're all directed to the person of Jesus Christ. So 
Whenever anybody says something about Jesus, you must judge it to the scriptures. If it deviates, then it's not true. It's false. It's heresy. You have to be real clear about the person. Jesus being preached today in the church, a different Jesus in many different ways. So you must judge him according to the scriptures. So let's begin here with the eternal word of life. Beginning verse 1, notice that which was from the beginning. Um, The opening statement in Genesis refers to the beginning of creation and time as we know it today, past, present, and future. There is no doubt Jesus was in the beginning of creation, as you know. He was the agent of creation in um, the threefold designation of time, past, present, and future, indicates our present time continuum in contrast to the eternal aspect prior to that time. Colossians 1.16 says that Jesus Christ uh, created all things in heaven and earth, principalities, visible and invisible, all things. They were created for him. So the Father was involved in creation, the Son involved in creation, the Spirit involved in creation, okay? So if Jesus Christ is indicated as the one who created all things, then he must be eternal by very clear definitions. You can't come up with any conclusion. The fact that he was at the beginning and the agent of creation verifies that he is eternal. Now, the beginning of John's gospel refers to the beginning of time, emphasizing preexistence of Jesus, the logos. In John 1, 1, he says, uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and God was the word. The word was is in the imperfect Durative, what they call, and it implies continuous existence reaching back to the point of the beginning. So, not only was Jesus before time began, but then he stepped into time as we're going to see, as in the linear time as you and I know it, but it came out of eternity. So the proclamation is a statement of fact regarding the preexistence of the Logos. So he was with God. When you're with God, who is eternal, whoever's with God has to be eternal. And they both are part of, crea- of the creative order. So you can't conclude anything else. You can't distinguish it any other way. Now, the beginning of the first epistle of John here speaks of the beginning of the person of Jesus Christ in his human form from the beginning of his ministry. So, the beginning of creation in Genesis the beginning before creation in the Gospel of John, and now here, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus on earth. So, three different beginnings. The beginning of the ministry of Jesus encompasses and implies that he was at the beginning of time and creation. He always has been. Encompasses preexistence and the aspect of eternity. The certainty of both his being eternal and preexistent is pointed out throughout the letter as you move. And it's only five little chapters, but it's a powerful, powerful letter. The important thing to note is that John's purpose here in writing is to focus on exposing the false teaching of the Gnostics. The basic belief of the Gnostics, and there are very variations, but is this, simple form. Matters, evil, spirit is good. Matter and spirit do not affect one another. So you can live in this body, and you can get drunk, you can fornicate, you can do whatever you want, and it's never going to affect your spirit. Wow, what a growing church. All right? And that had different consequences, too. The Corinthian Gnostics falsely taught that Jesus was endued with the deity 
upon the baptism when the Spirit of God descended upon him. And then prior to the death on the cross, his deity left him. So what do you have left? Who's dying? Just a man. So whatever anybody says, you have to judge it to the scripture. Okay? The Bible doesn't say that his deity came upon him at his baptism. It says that the baptism confirmed that he was deity. There's a big difference. So that's subjective, so you compare it to the objective truth. And when Jesus says it is finished, he finished the work of atonement as the God-man, not as the Gnostics say. So a slight little twist from different points of view, whether it be Gnosticism or whatever is being taught today or the next generation, you must judge it to the scripture. You cannot deviate from who Jesus is and record it to be in the scriptures. You will miss heaven. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the um, Docetist Gnostics said that Jesus didn't even have a body. And so when he walked on the sand, he didn't leave any footprints. Where, where do you get this? Not in the scriptures at all. So both Gnostics are exposed as liars when you judge it to the scriptures. Jesus is the life-giving word of the gospel, which is embraced by, by and through the proclamation about Jesus, who is the living word of God. And the main verb here is found in verse 3. We declare to you. We declare to you. Three groups in First John. Don't miss them. The Gnostics were the deceivers. The Christians who are resisting deception. And the Christians who are being deceived. Three groups. Alright? Now Calvinists will use First John to teach eternal security. A predestination. When it's really written to the, for the opposite. Because the Gnostics said you can be eternally secure. Because you pre-existed before the time. That's Calvinism. The key word to First John is the word abide. 27 or 29 times. One of the two. In other words, Jesus said in John 15. Unless you abide in me, you can do nothing, right? If you don't abide in me, I'll cut you off and catch you in the fire, right? So it's really teaching just the opposite. The only way you can know you're right with God and you're going to be in heaven is by abiding in Christ Jesus, right? You abide in his doctrine. You abide in him. It's real simple. Four or five centuries after Jesus' birth, the world uh, followed the uh, old Roman calendar. Dionysius of Rome computed the birth of Jesus and adjusted it to the Christian calendar to begin with that year. And that year before Jesus was counted backwards, B.C., meaning before Christ. And years after Jesus was counted forward, A.D., referring to the Latin words Anno Domini, meaning in the year of the Lord. Now, this date is off about five years or so because human calendars, they, they differed. You have the lunar calendar, the sun calendar, different things. But the point being here is that Jesus always has divided the history of man before or after. He's the central figure. Now, the last 30 years has been changing in our own country. Okay, common era. If you go to college, it's common era. Not BCAD anymore. Even when you read regular secular papers, it's common era. A rejection of God altogether. A rejection of the recognition of who Jesus is. It's not a subtle thing. It's very straightforward today. The witness of the prophet Micah declares his birth 
And he declares that he would be from all eternity coming into a temporal zone. Listen to him. Who's going forth, having been from of old, from everlasting, which literally means from the days of eternity or from the vanishing point to the vanishing point in Micah 5.2. So think back as far as you can. You've got it? Now it's still back further. The vanishing point from all eternity. Remember that time came out of eternity. When we get done after we come back with the Lord, he sets up the kingdom. After the thousand year reign, the white throne judgment, then there's the eternity. Time goes back into eternity. The new heaven, the new earth. Full cycle. Now, the witness of John the Baptist was that the one coming after him was in fact not only ranked higher than him, but the fact that he existed before him. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 15, John says, and he was before me. Now, how can John say that Jesus was before him if John was six months older than Jesus? If he was before him, then he must be speaking about eternity, not the general, logical, chronological, linear timeline, because John was older. He's referring to his eternity, absolutely. So the testimony of John is that Jesus, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, who is and who was, who is to come, is the Almighty, a vivid description of the eternal existence of Jesus, even as he writes later in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 8, because John wrote the gospel, 1 John, in the book of Revelation. So he's consistent in who the person of Jesus is. The witness of Philip, when Jesus appeared to him, was twofold. He said, my Lord, my God, John 20, 28. My Lord, a real person. Who's that person? God. Simple. Allah's not God. Buddha's not God. Krishna's not God. Muhammad's not God. Only Jesus. The witness of John in the closing of the epistle. And people always ask me, where in the Bible does it say Jesus is God? There's all kinds. I can give you tons of them. But let me just give you the one here. In chapter 5, verse 20. He says, and we know this, that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding and that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. There it is. He's called God. John calls him God. Now God can become less than God. He became man, but he became the God-man. Very important. Now, the last witness that verifies the pre-existence and eternal existence of Jesus that I want to give you is Jesus himself. Listen to him. He tells the Pharisees as they kept rejecting him as Messiah, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw and he was glad. And when they said, they, they said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Wow. You can't, you can't come to any other conclusion Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was, I am. John 8, 56-58. Ego Amy. The very same one that talked to Moses, that's what Jesus was. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus prayed to the Father. Listen to him in John 17, 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. Listen, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before they created the world, he was there, the glory, in which he clearly refers to his pre-existence. 
John 17, 5. If you look at the scriptures, you examine. Scripture interprets scripture, not the pastor. You must take scripture to interpret scripture in its context. So Jesus is the eternal word of life from the beginning of time and his ministry. Absolutely, John says. So therefore, what the Gnostics were teaching was absolutely false. He knocks it out, he destroys it in the first verse. And not even the complete verse yet. (laughs) This is what the word of God does, ladies and gentlemen. Notice secondly, the historical word of life. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. So John, the beloved here, is going to move in step by step, intensifying the movement through short descriptive phrases of the human senses to verify the reality of that which was from the beginning, only to reveal the climax of that progression. What is it? The word of life. Everything, that which was from the beginning, was the word of life. He makes this progression. Lenski, the Greek scholar, points out this, that there are four neuters in the verse one indicated by the phrase, that which, that which, and the fifth one in verse three. Now, it wasn't written in English or Spanish or Latin, but in Greek. Greek is very detailed, very precise with the grammar and the tenses and all that. And so he states the following. The neuter conveys more than the masculine would, namely in addition to the person, all that the person was and is or ever will be. Listen, for us. In other words, the person of Jesus Christ is for our benefit. Not only just that he's a person, but all that he is and all that he came to be for us so that we would benefit from him and him alone. And it's according to what God says about his son, not to what man says. Throughout these neuter relative clauses, they speak of the person plus the grace, the power, the salvation. They are conveyed to us through this very person. No one else. Jesus Christ cannot be separated from what he was and is for us. Notice next that Jesus, being a man, spoke and was understood. So it's not some mystical thing. It's not some secret religion for the select few, for only those who really have the Bible or or spiritual. No. The phrase which we have heard identifies that which was from the beginning, that which is eternal and spoke through prophets, now was speaking to all men on earth. God abdicated his throne. Isaiah is all that you would come down. He answered it. He came down to speak to men. That which preexisted before time now spoke in time. That which came to be at the beginning of the earthly ministry marked a particular time of redemption. There was a set time. When the fullness of time, God sent forth the Son, made of a woman under the law. Galatians 4.4. Right on time. Look at the word heard. It's very specific again. Meaning to... A, attend or to understand and perceive. The phrase is in the perfect tense, um, a past action with continuing hearing effects. Jesus used the same word in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it has been said of those of old, Matthew 5, 21, and then he superseded that with his own authority, and I say unto you, he's the ultimate authority. Paul used the same word, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, Galatians 
1.13. Men heard about Paul. They knew who he was. They heard clearly what he was doing. The same word. John and many others had heard Jesus preach, teach, cry, get angry. They perceived it clearly. Even as your children understand you clearly when you speak to them. When you blow your top or whatever it is. They hear, they see, woo, they understand. We have so many um, examples of the gospel of Jesus speaking. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He told his disciples in Matthew 20, 28. He told the woman of Samaria um, about who he was and what he could give. And she says, give me drink. He spoke to her in John 4, 7. Jesus said to the impotent man, the pool of Bethesda, and we were just there and we did a study right on the site. Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said, Rise, take up your bed and walk. John 5, 6 through 8. People understood Jesus clearly. And when he gave a command, he gave the ability to obey it. He didn't say, take up your bed and walk, and he tries it. Ha ha, fooled you. No. He gave the ability. The man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. He said, oh, don't mock me. Are you mocking me? I can't do it. Stretch it out. So if he commands, he gives us the ability. Now, there's an extreme teaching of the positive confession that if you have enough faith, you can do whatever. That's not what it's talking about. God is sovereign. Why does God heal some, not others? I don't know. We'll ask them together when we get there. But certainly it's not because he loves one more than another. Because he's sovereign, he knows what's best. And he wants us to depend upon him completely. And you can go on and on and on and, and realize that he spoke to people clearly. They understood him. He was a real person. Now, notice Jesus as a man had a physical body then that could be seen. Because this was the, the teaching of the Gnostics that Jesus didn't have a physical body, one of the aspects. The phrase which we have seen with our eyes also identifies that which was from the beginning. All these descriptions and actions point back to the one that was at the beginning from eternity and all of a sudden appeared in temporal time zone. The eternal one took on the form of a real man. The eternal one was outside the man's time domain, stepped into the temporal time involving this linear time of past, present, and future. The word seen here again is very specific and it means to see with understanding, to discern clearly. So every one of these words is overlapping, it's contiguous. They're just, they're, they're hidden from every angle so there can be no wiggle room on what he's saying. To gaze as a spectacle. It's like when you and I, you look at something and, and you see it, but you go... And you, to make sure that it is what you're seeing, you know what I mean? You, you scrutinize, you, you, wow, it is, I am seeing right. This is the word. The testimony is personal by experiencing our own eyes, examining him at a close range, not being deceived, not being mistaken. People will tell you, how do you know the Bible is true? What would make you think it isn't if it's God's word? And the biggest effect upon my life is that I'm not the same person I used to be. And neither I'm deceiving myself and doing it all myself or it's God. 
Now, if I'm doing it myself now, why didn't I do it myself before? Simple. Because I was dead before I came to Christ. Now I'm alive and he lives in me. It's just real simple. The phrase is in the perfect tense as the previous one, a past action with continuous seeing effect. You see Jesus all the time as you read the word of God. You see Jesus as he works in your husband and wife, as he works in your children. You see Jesus every time as he directs and guides you, he opens doors in a real way. And you can only share those things with Christians. If you share it with non-believers, they're going to call the loony farm to you. You know, They think you're crazy, right? Luke uses the word to describe <clears throat> Zachariah's experience. Listen to Luke one twenty-two. But when he, meaning Zachariah, the father of John the Baptist, when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple for he beckoned them to remain speechless. Remember, he didn't believe the angel about the birth of his son. So the angel said, hey, you're not going to be able to speak until he's born. John and all the others had clearly understood the person of Jesus by examination. This is not something mystical. This is not something they're imagining in their mind. These first two, heard and seen, are closely related to saving faith by hearing and believing who Jesus is. It's talking about salvation. What I hear, I respond to. And if I respond to be saved, then I'm able to see, right? Hearing, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So as I hear the word of God and the Holy Spirit turns that light on, he gives me the ability to make a choice. And I make the right choice and I'm able to see. If I reject the right choice, then I remain blind, right? Simple. It isn't God's fault, it's my fault. He let me choose, right? Wouldn't, you, wouldn't it be nice if God just forced you? But then you complain because he forced you, right? But God says, you choose. And then, and then you say, well, uh, that's not fair. I mean, why did he make me? Well, choose. Why, why aren't you saved? I don't want to. Well, then you have the right to go to hell. You don't have to, but you have the right to go to hell. But why do you want to blame God if you're going to hell? Because you chose to go to hell. He lets you choose to go to heaven. If you don't want to go to heaven, then you're going to go to hell. But don't blame God. You have the choice. But that's the way we are, right? Hmm. There are plenty of instances people seeing Jesus, not a phantom. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world in John one twenty nine. He wasn't imagining a man. He was pointing to a man. Jesus Christ. Many saw him crucified, buried. They saw him calm the waves and the Galilee. They saw him enter the temple and Cast out the money changers. They heard him. They saw him. The disciples saw him ascend up into the heavens. The angel says, why are you guys staring here? The same way you saw him come, he's going to return. They saw him. Jesus told the disciples, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. They were the epitome of the fulfillment of the Messiah present before them. The others just long to look forward to that, waiting for it, proclaiming that it's going to come. They were the ones. Wow. That's why they were blessed. 
blessed completely. Notice Jesus was a man. And as a man, he was scrutinized. The faith which have looked upon further identifies that which was from the beginning. All these terms go back to the one that was at the beginning. The one who was perfect and spotless from all eternity took on a temporal body. The word looked again is very, very specific. It means to behold intelligently so as to interpret and grasp the meaning. It's The best example is, you know, remember when, I mean, I don't even know if they teach us anymore, fractions, you know what I mean? But, you know, but when you were trying to find the common denominator, you just didn't get it. You saw it, you saw the numbers, you understood the numbers, but it just, you couldn't connect the dots. And all of a sudden, one day, bing, the dots were connected. Whoa, that's what happened here. Before this, he had not come. When he came, those who were open to him, the dots were connected. It became a reality. Luke uses the word when Jesus saw the publican, the Levite, there at the temple, Luke 5. John and others had fully and completely understood that Jesus was the Messiah. To come. There was no mistake. They laid down their lives for it. They forsook all. And the tense is the decisive errors. We did actually behold. We weren't flipping out. We weren't on some drugs. It wasn't our mystical experience. It was a literal, physical, tangible, present understanding. So the evidence of Scripture... You have to truly reject the truth. But see, look to our culture. Look to the world. We have been indoctrinated heavily for the last 30 to 40 years through the Trojan horse of public and university education to reject truth, to transfer truth to be relative, to confuse truth so that you are the master of your own decision, opinion, and values. So that when you finally hear truth, you will not accept it. You will go for the lie instead of the truth. Look to our culture. Look to our nation. We have been brainwashed that Islam is a religion of peace. Where do you get that from? Pull up the internet. Look at any section of history of Islam since it began. Where they're not killing others, they're killing themselves, each other. Where are the peaceful Muslims? Nobody has world conquest except Islam. We don't have world conquest in mind. Nobody does. And so people have been fed a lie. And that lie is going to cost us and has cost us in many, many ways. And the last eight years of this administration has promoted and protected Islam in every way. They're being sprinkled all over the United States right now. The number is nine to one. Immigration for infiltration for occupation. You understand? 
It's real simple. I'm not that smart, but um, I'm not that dumb either. Jesus, the man, was touched and felt, which our hands have handled, finalizing the identity of that which was from the beginning. The eternal God who is untouchable became touchable by man. The eternal unapproachable God became approachable by man. Do you know what that means? No longer high priests. No longer other people going between us, but you can go directly to God. What an amazing privilege. The word handle is specific again. It means to examine closely as to investigate. Once again, note the personal testimony by experience. Our hands have handled. In other words, they did not trust their sight alone, but they actually touched Jesus to be certain. You hear, you see, you touch. You look down, it looks wet, you go. Right? They work together. All your senses. One verifies the other. John has destroyed the teaching of the Gnostics, Docetists, as well as the others, regarding that Jesus had no physical body. And he'll go on to destroy their teaching that you can do whatever you want in the body and that won't affect your spirit. Not so, it's a lie. It's a lie from hell that will send you to hell. Now, that same lie is being taught through the emergent church. You know that? Because the new Christianity, you can get drunk, you can drink all you want. No big deal. Pastors cuss from the pulpits. Wow. I'm not lying to you. I don't go on YouTube. You go on there. Check them out. Wow. So are we trying to prove to the world we're just like them? So even Brian Broderson on Cable says that they go to the pubs over in England, right? And on uh, England Fest, right? No big deal. Vegas is not bad. You can go to Vegas. Really? Hmm. All right. You go, Brian. Destruction to the church from within, ladies and gentlemen. Destruction. The word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew writings, for Isaac when he felt Jacob to see if he was really Esau. Remember, he says, "Ah, you know, I, 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 come closer so I can feel you." Ooh, same word. Jesus used the word, "Behold, my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have." Luke twenty four thirty nine. A real man. Like the previous verse and phrase, we did actually handle him. He had a real body. So the letter was written at a set time for a set purpose, with a set background, with a set deception. John is directing himself to that Gnostic heresy. The incident that gives evidence of people touching Jesus are countless. Who touched me, Jesus said in Luke 8, 45. Remember that woman with the issue of blood? And they said, who touched you? Look at the cloud, the crowds. Touched them. Jesus touched the leper and cleansed them in Matthew 8, 3. The disciples ate, traveled, slept alongside with him, traveled with him. 
He was a real person. You see, all four faces here and phrases are historical and timeless in nature. He ate, he spoke, he walked after the resurrection as well as before. The only difference is that after the resurrection, he's in a glorified body, a little different. Jesus never walked through walls before the resurrection, but after the resurrection, he did. Still physical body, but a different molecular structure than we know it. What we're going to be. That's the only difference. The physical and the human person of Jesus continues to the present day. You have a heavenly mediator, the God-man. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father with the wounds in his hands and a glorified body. And as God, he's took the whole of the hand of God the Father. And as man, he took the whole of the sinner who called upon him and he joins them together and reconciles him. Both are necessary. The God-man. 100% God, 100% man. Absolutely. And he will bear those wounds when he returns. Zechariah 13, 6 says that he bore for you and myself. In um, the Encyclopedia Britannica, it uses 20,000 words to tell about Jesus and never hints that he did not exist. This is more words than the Britannica allows for Aristotle, Alexander the Great, Cicero, Julius Caesar, or Napoleon Bonaparte. H.G. Wells blasphemed Jesus, yet he felt compelled to discuss Jesus on ten pages of his own outline of history and never questioned that the man named Jesus did live. He was persuaded he lived, but he didn't believe in him. You see, if you take the evidence of Scripture, just how it's revealed, how it's recorded, you, you have to hands down believe that what it says. There's, there's no evidence against it whatsoever. Jesus spoke to the people today as much as he did in those days through his word. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God who at different times and in diverse manners spoke in times past to the fathers has in these last days spoken to us through his dear son. He doesn't speak through anybody else but his son. So in other words, the prophets were progressive. Jesus was the climax of it and the completion of all. So he speaks now through his son what has been revealed and recorded about his word. So anytime somebody says, yeah, but there are other books. What are the books? There's only 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. None other book, okay? Apocryphal books, other books, they don't mean anything. They're inferior. They're not inspired by the Spirit of God. Jesus is seen today by faith and as a real person throughout the Scriptures, all the time. Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. So we live in a, in a seeming contradiction, a paradox, a clashing of two worlds. I used to live in this world after the world. My worldview was after the world. In the natural realm, I conducted myself according to my culture, according to what I learned. And then I was born again. And now I have a different perspective, a different worldview. I know I'm alive now. I know that my spirit is the most important. And it's alive because now I respond to the word of God. And therefore, I have a sin nature and I have a divine nature. And they butt heads. So I must reckon the old man dead and yield to the new man. 
daily. Jesus said, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Dying daily, he says. When I give my last breath, I won't have to worry about that. Until then, I got to fight. And it's a good fight. And it's a winnable fight. It's very important. Jesus looked upon and examined by all through the scriptures to see if, in fact, he is who he says he is. And it points to us absolutely without any doubt that he is God who became man. He's the son of the living God, the redeemer of the world through the atoning work of the cross. No other way. And Jesus signed it in blood. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9. Whom having not seen you love, though you are not seen him, yet believe, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your soul, or the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So by faith we know that we are believers by what God has done in our life. We know that Jesus came because what the word tells us. And we know that he's coming back for his church. And so we continue to grow in the knowledge of his son. And he continues to work in us and through us. And it is he who we're living to and looking for. Not anything else. We don't follow a man. We don't follow a preacher, a teacher. We don't follow a movement. We follow Jesus Christ. And we run everything through the scriptures. And the ones that are always wrong are you and I. Never the scriptures. Absolutely never. So Jesus is the historical word of life in human form. Isaiah's prayer. Oh, that you would rent the heavens and come down. Jesus was the answer to Isaiah's prayer. He did come down. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son made of a woman. Galatians 4.4. 4. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory as only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. Philippians 2.5 on down. Being in the form of God, he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but he took on the form of a servant, obedient to the death of the cross. Wow. I noticed thirdly, the spiritual word of life comes last. Concerning the word of life. Jesus is the word of life. The emphasis in this opening statement falls on the phrase, the word of life, which the writer is proclaiming. We have already seen all five phrases are neuter, conveying more than the masculine would. And it's not only talking about the person, but all that he is and all that he can do for us. So it is of him, by him, and through him that we are all that we are. Apart from me, you can do nothing, absolutely nothing. So the emphasis is on the phrase word of life. The word life is Zoe. That's a very popular name for girls today. Zoe, it means life. And the word is logos. Zoe refers to the absolute fullness of life, both essential and ethical, which belongs to God and Christ and imparts it to those who put their trust in him, leading to eternal life. Jesus said, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, Zoe, and there are few who find it. People always ask me, are there many people to be saved? Jesus said, few. And he said, agonize to enter in. So that means in terms of the number of people that have been born into this world, the end result of people in heaven will be few, not a whole bunch. Okay? Now, if you listen to the emergent church and all these guys that are, that are trying to um, constantly say the revival is going on, you think that hundreds of thousands are going into the kingdom. Now, who are you going to believe, the words of Jesus or, or the words of men? <laughs> They're just trying to promote their ministries. That's all. 
Now, we give you names of people who are born again uptown, you know, and there's two, three, four, sometimes five, six to nine. That's fine. But you take that proportion, that's the equal proportion. That proportion for the number of people that are in Pasadena that night, maybe 10 except the Lord. That's a very few compared to the, the, the number of people that are down there, right? You don't have to go any further. It's the same to the, at the end. Now, the construction of the Greek underscores the nature of the object which is proclaimed, the word, rather than the activity of proclaiming it. So it's the person of the word. There is a proclamation, but John is focusing on the person. In other words, it is a person who is the object, not the act of preaching. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, we proclaim him, but it's proclamation about a person, a real person, who was God, who became man, who walked for 33 or so years, and who died for the sins of the world. John is said to use the simple accusative here, which means the gospel, but instead he uses the word concerning, which includes such a meaning. What the apostle heard, saw, with his eyes looked upon and handled was the personal word, the person who is the logos of life, Jesus Christ. This is the attack of First John against the person of Christ. Now notice Jesus, as the word of life, imparts life to spiritually dead people. If he's the word of life, the implication is men are dead. Right? If we had life, why would we need Jesus? Now, you're young, you're 20, 25 years old, you know, you, you know you're a specimen of just, you know, Thor. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and you, you know, you're alive, breathing and that, but if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're dead. He who lives in pleasure is dead while they're living, right? And so, here's the whole goal. That Jesus might come to make dead people alive. Now, he doesn't force you to become alive. He offers you that you can become alive. How many people like to be forced to do anything? Now, as parents, you force your kids to eat vegetables. They don't like it, but you're doing it for their good. But when you're an adult and somebody says, you're going to come over to my house. Oh, no, I'm not. Oh, no, you're coming over to my house. Really? I'm going to go over and get you. Come on. You don't want to go. You're not going to go, right? God's going to say, you're going to heaven. No, I'm go- I want to go to hell. No, you're going to go to heaven. No, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to hell. God says, you know what? I'll give you your choice. So that when you end up in hell, you can't blame God. It's simple. God told Adam, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat, you shall surely die. Genesis 2.17. The first thing that happened was spiritual death, separation from God's fellowship. Immediately followed physical death. The body began to die, to decay. Immediately. God confronted Adam and Eve. 
And he made an atonement for their sin. Genesis 3.21, he killed an innocent animal. Covered their sin with the blood. Covered their nakedness with the skin. And then the literal warning became a reality. Literally, he says, dying you shall die. So the minute Adam and Eve partook, immediately their death to fellowship with God. Sin separates man from God. But immediately the physical body began to decay and die. So literally, he was dying. The first second he took, dying, dying, the first week, dying. And the, the, the birth of a child. We celebrate their birth. But the minute the child is born, they begin to die. That's the first day of their death. The first week, they're dying. The first month, they're dying. The first month, the first year, they're dying. The first decade, they're dying. 50 years old, they're dying. Then finally, they die completely and finally and ultimately at 65. We say, well, yeah, I'm getting older. No, you're dying. (laughs) That's what's happening. You're dying. Your body is dying. It doesn't recover as fast. You're not going upward. You're going downward. You reach a heap and then it's like a roller coaster. Here we go. Some reach the bottom faster than others. The best you're going down. And so the fellowship is broken. God restores it through the promise of the Messiah. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. And yet, God had to protect that tree. Knowing now that through that fall, sin nature came in. Adam and Eve now have this sin nature that's rebellious against God. They're still creating the image and likeness of God. It's marred, not destroyed. They've been redeemed, so they got two natures, right? And God knows that the old sin nature wants to draw them in so they can go back into the garden and partake of the tree of life and they would live eternally in a fallen state. So God protects them. You say, are you sure? Listen, Genesis 3.22, God says it. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man had become like one of us, the Trinity, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So in other words, if we don't boot him out of the garden and put the cherubim to guard the tree, they'll eat in a fallen state and they won't be able to be redeemed. At first, it looks like God's unjust, unloving, mean. But really, as you read it, He's loving, compassionate, and protecting. Just like your kids think you're a creep, but you know you're protecting them. The exact same thing. Jesus is the tree of life. Paul tells us Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who hangs on the tree, Galatians 3.13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to him the eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, Revelation 2.17. John tells us regarding the thousand-year reign of Jesus in the midst of the, of the street, and on the either side of the river was a tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22, 2. You see it as Jesus' life, who's the life giver through the word of life, the gospel. Jesus is the life-giving word of God, who is the life. He says it in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Jesus, the very revelation of, the, of God the Son through whom the Father has chosen to speak ultimately and finally through no one else. John is saying life is Jesus Christ and that comes through the proclamation of the gospel. But make sure it's the Christ of the gospel. You must examine which Christ you're talking about. Very, very clear. Daniel Webster, in his prime of his manhood, was dining with, um, one day with a company of literary men in uh, Boston. And the uh, conversation turned into the subject of Christianity, which Mr. Webster expresses belief in the divinity of Christ and dependency for the atonement and as a savior. One man said to him, quote, Mr. Webster, can you comprehend how Christ could be both God and man? Agnostics, intellectual people think they're so smart. Really insulting, aren't they? Mr. Webster promptly replied, No, sir, I cannot comprehend it, for if I could comprehend it, he would be no greater than myself. I feel that I need a superhuman savior. Absolutely. <laughs> See, if I can understand God and bring him down to I can understand him, then he's no better than I. Or greater, right? And yet there are so many things I can't understand, but there's some that are so transcendent that just, I blow circuits. I don't know. But there's so much I do understand that what I don't understand should never falter my faith. Because if what I understand is absolutely true, then why would I believe that what I don't understand is false? Duh. John's gospel says, in him Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men, John 1, 4. Men love darkness rather than light. Men and women walk in darkness without Jesus Christ. Some of us have walked with God so long we have forgotten how miserable that darkness was. We have to remember how good God has been to us. God said to the woman of Samaria, But whoever drinks of the water that I have given to him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give to him become a fountain of living water springing up everlasting life. John 4.14 4. Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. John 6.63 6, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John 6.68 6, the thief does not come except to kill, to kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and they may have it more abundantly. John 10.10. 10. Wow. Jesus came to give life to people who are dead. In fact, that's why John wrote his gospel. John 20.31, 20, he says, uh, But these uh, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed Messiah, meaning deity, God the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of the Gospel of John. Because you and I were dead in trespasses and sins. But then it says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Ephesians 2 on down to 8. Wow. But God, what a powerful, powerful 
two words, but God. You remove those two words, you and I are in utter darkness headed for hell. But God. Yet I have a choice. He doesn't force me. Just like you had a choice who to marry. You asked that woman to marry you, and she could say, get out of my life, no way. Or, yeah. You didn't force her. And when people are forced to get married, does it work? Mm-mm. There's no way. It's a voluntary thing. And so God gives you the choice whether you want to spend eternity with him or separated from him. It is a very real choice as much as you are sitting here today. I pray you make the right one. Jesus is the spiritual word of life for all of mankind. And so, the attestation of the word here, John describes from the threefold perspective, the eternal word of life from the beginning of time and his ministry. The historical word of life in human form and the spiritual word of life for all mankind. There's no exception. No one can say, I deserve heaven. But everyone has to say, I deserve hell. Absolutely. But it gives you a choice whether you really want to go there or not. I pray you don't. Lord, thank you for your grace and love your goodness. Deal with our hearts, Lord, and we just uh, worship you. We thank you in all things that you may be honored. We love you, Lord. And Father, I pray right now as those that are here and over the internet, Lord, that you would speak to them. As you're sitting here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has knocked on the door of your heart. Ball's in your court. You have to respond one way or the other. You say, well, I don't want to respond right now. Well, if you choose not to choose, you've chosen to reject Jesus. It's just that simple. There is no neutral point with Jesus Christ. Once you've heard, you're now accountable much, much more. To those who much is given, much more is required. And so if your decision is to believe who Jesus is, the Savior of the world who died for you and rose from the dead, then you can call upon his name right now, ask him to forgive you, and he will do that and give to you eternal life based on grace through faith because you have believed God's revelation. This is your prayer to him if you want to be born again. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.